Good evening. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> it's good to see everybody this evening. I uh, hope everybody's had a good weekend. I uh, hope everybody's enjoyed the weather this weekend. It's been, it's been pretty nice to be able to hang out outside. Um, just good to be here. Good to be here to be able to worship the Lord together this evening. Uh, if you're a guest uh, at Tri-Cities Baptist Church, we are glad that you are here with us this evening. Uh, we would invite you to go to our website at tcbchurch.org slash discover. Sign up for Discover Tri-Cities. Uh, we would love to get to know you and share uh, more with you about what it means to be a member here at Tri-Cities Baptist. Uh, we have a lot to cover this evening in the book of Ecclesiastes. We have a lot to cover in a very short amount of time. So we're going to jump right into it. Uh, but before we do, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good. You are sovereign. You are holy. Lord, you are all-powerful and you are working all things for your glory. Lord, you are redeeming a people for yourself for your glory. Lord, please be with us as we hear the truths of your word this evening. Lord, please open our minds and our hearts to receive the truths of your word. Lord, please be with me as I proclaim the truths of your word. Lord, may we not hear from a man, but may we hear from you. Lord, may we worship our way through the message this evening. Lord, for your glory and our eternal joy in you. and Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So, uh, the observations by the writer of Ecclesiastes brings us good news tonight. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. You're like, man, come on. I know this is the, this is the book where it's all vanities of vanities, striving after the wind. It's pretty depressing. Well, in one way, you're right about that. Um, but a correct understanding of the depressing parts of Ecclesiastes, they get our mind right and they prepare us to be able to see life with an eternal perspective. Um, it points us to a life that finds true and eternal satisfaction in the Lord. Uh, in order to better understand Ecclesiastes this evening, we're first going to jump ahead uh, to something the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome. You can find that in Romans 8.20. Paul wrote, for the, creation, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not because of him whom, whom subjected it in hope. See, Paul is referring to the brokenness of creation after the fall. Okay, so we know from the book of Genesis that God created everything, and he created everything good, right? And he created man in his own image, and he blessed man, and he, he get, gave man the gift of marriage and the gift of work. And though God had created all things good, and he had blessed man, uh, human beings, four-footed their righteous standing before a holy God in exchange to chase after trying to be God themselves. And it was then that the sin nature of humanity and death entered the world. And from that point on, the whole world was broken and no longer good as God had created it to be. And as a result of man's sin, man would now face death. That wasn't God's original plan, but because of sin, man would now face death. And the corruption of sin would affect every area of man's life, and it still affects man's life today. It affects our relationship with God. It affects our marriages. It reflects our relationships with other image bearers of God. Paul made a reference. You can turn on our TV today and watch any news channel and see how just 
horrific we treat other image bearers of God. It's in our sin nature. The fall also affects our work. God told man after the fall, he said, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Work was no longer good as God created it. And sin would not only have an impact on humanity, but sin had an impact on the entire world. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation was groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This describes the broken world that Paul lived in, the broken world that the writer of Ecclesiastes lived in, the broken world that we live in today and that we will live in in this side of eternity. The author of Ecclesiastes, he refers to himself as the preacher, okay? And it's, and it's, widely, believed, it's widely believed that the author of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon, uh, based upon uh, what he says about himself in the book. And um, according to a lot of church history, it's widely believed that, that it was King Solomon and that he wrote this book in reference to his observations in his life uh, when he turned away from God. And uh, several weeks back, you probably read about this in 1 Kings when we were in uh, the books of Kings. You can see that about Solomon's life. Uh, based upon church history and what we know of King Solomon, I tend to agree that it's King Solomon who wrote this book. However, uh, the Bible's not uh, explicit in who the author is. He just refers to him, the author refers to himself as the preacher. So through the rest of this evening's message, I too am going to refer to him as the preacher. And just like all of creation is groaning, the preacher was inwardly groaning over the, over the futility of life on this earth. He is groaning about life that now exists after the fall of man. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher speaks of the vanity of life, the vanity of the world. And the Hebrew word that he uses for vanity translates to the Greek word that Paul uses in Romans 8 as futility. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher uses the word vanity 38 times to describe life under the sun. A life that is here today and gone tomorrow. A life that doesn't seem to have any lasting impact or any lasting significance. The preacher writes in Ecclesiastes 1, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. You see, the preacher describes life as fleeting and being empty of significance, just like a vapor, right? You ever see your breath when it's cold outside and you breathe and you see your breath? I'm still like a child. I'm still trying to like breathe out smoke rings with my vapor. Like I try to do that. I've never successfully been able to do that, but you'll see me like outside trying to do that. If you ever wonder what I'm doing, um, I'm very childish in many ways. Um, but you know, and it's cool to see your own breath, right? But it has no less lasting significance. As you see your breath on a cold day, you can see that there's really not much there and it's gone pretty quick. I think that may be what James had in mind when he wrote of life in James 4. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And throughout Ecclesiastes, the preacher wrestles with the purpose and significance of life. And he writes about what he's observed about life under the sun. 
and about living in a broken world with a limited understanding of God's purposes. And during his life under the sun, the preacher observed that life is short. You're here one day, you're gone the next. Generation comes, a generation goes. And after people die, that they're not remembered by those who live on after them. I mean, think about that. What do you know about your great-grandparents? What do you know about their parents? What could you tell me about them right now? They may have had the same last name. But you probably really can't recall too many facts that you remember that someone's told you about them. And after death, someone will enjoy all of the possessions that we work so hard to accumulate during life under the sun. You getting depressed yet? You should be because it's bringing us to be able to appreciate significance in the Lord. The preacher observed that the world system is broken, that there's oppression in the world. He observed the injustice in the world. He observed a broken and corrupt political system. And we still see all these things today. He observed that there was no lasting significance or a sense of accomplishment in his work, in his job, what he did. Is that any of you? Do any of you all feel like when you go to work every day, it's just more of just being like on a hamster wheel? You do the same thing over and over and over and over, and it's so monotonous. And the only reason you do it is because it draws a paycheck so you can pay your bills every month, right? So maybe when you first got that job, maybe when you first got that promotion, maybe it was exciting for a while. But now it's something that you dread every morning when you wake up. You know you have to go back to work. While the preacher experienced short-term satisfaction in his work, he could not find lasting contentment in his work. He says in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So there's that short-term pleasure that he found from his work. But then verse 11 Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Is that ever you? The preacher also writes writes of his limited understanding of God's ways. His limited understanding of God's plans and purposes and how God interacts with his creation. And the name for God that the preacher uses throughout Ecclesiastes is Elohim. And this is important for us to know because it means that he recognizes God as the mighty creator, as the glorious God of creation who has sovereign control over it. And the preacher speaks of his limited understanding and how the mighty creator even interacts with humanity, those who he had made in his own image. He says in chapter 8, verse 14, there is vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. You see, he saw that the righteous faced affliction while the wicked continued to prosper. Maybe this is something that you've often wondered about yourself. And maybe you often ask and you wonder, how could a sovereign God be working in today's world that just seems so upside down when we see the righteous being afflicted. 
it doesn't take us too far into the Gospels to be able to see that this is clearest in the picture of Jesus on the cross. It has never been a more truer statement that one who was righteous suffered affliction. And even in that, when we see Jesus on the cross, that the most truest picture of that, we see in that that God had a plan. He was working out his eternal plan for his glory to redeem a people to himself. To himself. His eternal plan to satisfy his holy wrath while also granting mercy to those who are wicked. That's me and that's you. And the preacher's effort to find some sort of lasting significance and fulfillment under the sun, he sought out wisdom, he sought out worldly pleasures, and, he, and ways to remain cheerful. In order to find significance in this life, he chased after sex, he chased, it after, he chased after hosting huge parties and accumulating all kinds of wealth, and through his relationships with people and forming alliances with other world leaders, and he tried to find satisfaction in his work and even in the wisdom of just understanding God himself, he chased these things, and he made those things the main thing, trying to find ultimate significance in them. And at the end of it all, the preacher realized that all of his pursuits were like chasing in the wind. He realized that all the things that he thought would bring him lasting significance and fulfillment were just as empty and fleeting as seeing his own breath. And the culture we live in today does the same thing. Our culture in the West often chases after the wind by chasing after the American dream. We live in a culture with more money, more experiences, more entertainment, more pleasure, more recreation, and more stuff than any other generation that has ever existed. Pharmacies also refill the most antidepressants that have ever been in history, right? We have become accustomed to instant gratification. We no longer have to wait for our favorite TV show on TV. We just go to Netflix. I'm looking at some of the kids across the room right now, and you guys are a lot like my kids. You have no clue what it's like to wait for Saturday morning cartoons. You have no clue. You just go to Netflix or Prime or Hulu or whatever it is, and boom, it's there. Um, as adults, we set our sights on a nicer house, a nicer car, a new fishing boat, a new relationship, just fill in the blank. And we become anxious and depressed when we experience the sham of the American dream. When we begin to experience our discontentment with all of our stuff and experiences. And it's not that things such as relationships and success and money and sex and all that stuff, it's not that those are bad in and of themselves. In fact, if they're experienced in a way that God had intended them to, they're good gifts. But when they become the ultimate things to us, they become sin, they become idols, they leave us wanting. And they cannot satisfy us. And maybe like some of you in this room today, the preacher's limited perspective in seeing life as life under the sun, it led him to hating life itself. Ecclesiastes 2.17, the preacher says, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. But then we see that this this understanding that has brought him, the preacher, to, to just a low point in his life, it allowed him to have new perspective. 
In beginning in chapter 3, the preacher shares his thoughts after observing life through a different lens. And this new lens was still a lens of limited perspective, but it had an eternal focus. The preacher began to see that life wasn't just about what he experienced under the sun, but eternally his life had significance above and beyond the sun. That a part of God's sovereign eternal plan and purposes, his life was not in vain. He began to see that God is, is eternal, and his purposes and plans cannot be boxed into the short lifespan of time that we know it under the sun. The preacher began to see life through the lens that had its focus on eternity. It's a new lens. So some of you all go to the eye doctor. I, I wear contacts glasses, so I go to the eye doctor, you know, once a year or whatever. And if, and if you go to the eye doctor, you know what I'm talking about. They're like, is it better lens one or lens two? Right, so you start off like lens one, like you can't even, like if, if you're me, you can see it's an E at the top. That's like literally all you're seeing. And then lens two, and they get better and better. And then finally they get you to a clear picture where you can see. Just a side note though, I'm kind of a people pleaser. And like after they do that for so long, I can't tell a difference between lens one and two because they're doing the fine tuning, but I feel obligated to give them an answer. Like they're like one, two. And I'm like, can I see one again? Can I see two? And I know, like, I'm getting on the guy's nerves because they're probably the same thing. And I'm like, ah, I don't two. And then I leave with a prescription that's not quite right because I just wanted to say something to, to please the optometrist. And then I go 12 months not being able to see. And we play that game again in 12 months. Um, but for the preacher, lens two was a lot clearer. And it looked a lot like the same lens in which Paul saw the world, allowing Paul to write in his letter to the church in Rome, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's power is on display. And he works, as he works out, his eternal plan. That is good news for us this evening. God's power is on display as he works out his eternal plan. And looking through this new lens, through this though limited perspective, the preacher wrote, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So he's revisiting the question that he's been asking throughout this book. Now seeing this through this new lens with an eternal focus... The preacher observes that he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. And as God is working out his eternal plan, we know in verse 11 that he has made everything beautiful in its time. God works out his eternal plan according to his timing. God is making things right and good again. We know in the beginning in creation that God made everything good. 
Now, here's something you need to understand. After the fall, it's not like God lost his ability to make things good again. That's not what happened. God is making things good now in his time, according to his agenda, ultimately in and through the Lord Jesus. John MacArthur writes it this way. God's self-governing hand guides all of our activities and all the events of our history. He never does anything that is ugly or evil, but only which is fitting and appropriate. Therefore, we can rest in the knowledge that God will use every event in our lives to produce his will. And he will bring beauty even out of the ugliness and sorrow. The key here is the fact that he will do so in his time and not according to our schedule. God works out his eternal plan according to his timing. And God has also given man an innate desire for eternity, for a life that is more than just this futile life under the sun. We see in verse 11, also he has put eternity into, a, into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has created man to desire something bigger than a life of futility. Our desire to live forever and to have a last, lasting, lasting impact, that was given to us by God. We often want our lives to count for something. That's an innate, an innate desire given to us by God. It is God who's given us this desire for a life that is more than just a life of vanity lived under the sun. God has created man to desire something bigger than a life of vanity. And while God has given us a desire for eternity, a life bigger than a life of vanity, God's eternal plan is beyond the comprehension of man. Solomon, the preacher, he understood this in Ecclesiastes 8. He says, Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The Apostle Paul wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And throughout Ecclesiastes, the preacher's wrestling with this tension of his own confidence in God's eternal plan, yet he doesn't understand how God works out his eternal plan. Augustine wrote this in his confessions. He wrote, because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. We have that same rest, restlessness. But how do we respond to that? We, we know God has an internal plan. We can't figure it out and it just creates this tension. How do we respond to that? Well, there's a few ways that we often respond to it. One is we can chase idols to fill the void. And we see uh, that the preacher did this. It's not helpful when it's sin. We can also fall into despair, also not helpful in sin. Or we can trust in the Lord's goodness. Scripture encourages us to trust in the Lord's power and in his goodness. And I just want to take just a minute just to chase a thought. I just want to chase a, a quick rabbit about this. The degree that we trust someone is directly tied to how well we know someone. Right, So we trust somebody based on how well we know them. And we give more trust to that person. We allocate more trust to that person the more time we spend with them and the more time we get to observe their character. 
right? That's why we say things like trust is something earned, it's not something given. Maybe you're a Christian, but how well do you know God? How well do you know him? How often do you sit at the feet of Jesus getting to know him through the prayerful study of his word? Christian, don't be surprised if you begin to distrust God when you are not being reminded of who he truly is through the study of scripture. Don't be surprised. God's eternal plan is beyond the comprehension of man, but we can trust him. So what do we do in the meantime during this time of restlessness? Preacher writes this in verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. During this time, man should enjoy the life God has given him with an eternal perspective. Listen, the teacher, the preacher, he's not saying eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's not what he's saying. He's saying instead he advises us to trust God in his eternal plan. And that while we are trusting God, that we should enjoy what we do have, for this is a gift of God. MacArthur also writes this, The key to contentment is life. in life is to remember that all things come into our lives from the hand of God, both pleasure and pain. This is key. God's gift does not lie so much in the event itself, but in the eternal good that he brings from it. God's plan for us includes making us more like his son, Jesus. And he uses every event to advance this cause, including events that may bring heartache for a time. It can be easy to forget this fact when we're facing difficulty, yet we will find such times easier to endure if we rest in God's sovereignty. As Paul reminds us, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we're not trusting God in some sort of, we're not trusting in some sort of blind fate. We're not leaving things up to fate or to chance. Rather, we're trusting in the goodness and the power of God. And an eternal perspective that trusts in the Lord is the only way we can truly enjoy life. It's the only way we can truly enjoy our marriages, our relationships, and any other gift that God gives us. It's the only way we can truly enjoy them in the way that God has called us to. But listen, trusting in God's goodness and his power is the only way to have true lasting joy when cancer comes. When you lose a child. When you turn on the news and just everything seems upside down from the way it should be. During this season of restlessness, man should enjoy the life God has given him and have an eternal perspective. And with an eternal focus, man should pursue what is good and godly during his life with, with eternal perspective as well. Live your life in light of eternity. Pursue Christ's likeness. Pursue your marriage in light of eternity. Husbands, love and lead your family sacrificially like Jesus. Love and lead your family with an eternal purpose. Disciple your children in light of eternity. Parents, grandparents, make time to invest in your children and your grandchildren. To train them up in the ways of the Lord. That has eternal returns on your investment. 
And that return will be greater than any 401k that you've ever invested in over the past 40 years, I promise. Make a choice with your time and your energy to invest in your family. Share the gospel in light of eternity. Rather than see your coworkers and your neighbors as people to tolerate during life under the sun, pursue them in Christ. Be the light and the salt to the earth that God has called you to be. Get to know those who God has sovereignly placed in your life. Find opportunities to speak the gospel truth into the lives of others. Use your finances for eternal purpose, for an eternal investment. Support missions, support global missions, support church plants, support, um, use your finances to support those who are serving the vulnerable for the sake of the gospel, for those who will train leaders to, to share the gospel and lead others in context that you have no access to. Pursue what is good and godly during this life. Make an eternal investment. And at the end of this passage, the preacher offers up this final observation. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Church, God's power is on display as he works out his eternal plan. And the preacher concludes the entire book of Ecclesiastes by writing this. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Church, God's eternal plan is on display in the gospel. Just think about that, the gospel. You know, the, the, the quick four bullet points, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you're in Christ, though you're living in this current broken world, you are currently in the in-between time of our redemption and restoration. In this in-between time, your life is not vain. This is good news for us today. We should trust in the Lord and his eternal plan. Trust in the Lord even though there are pieces of his plan that we don't completely understand. And let's just be honest, there's pieces of his plan that we disagree with in our fleshly heart. We struggle with that, but trust in his goodness, trust in his power. Pursue Christ's likeness according to the word of God. And remember, after redemption, there's also restoration. And the gospel includes restoration, which is eternity. And it's the eternal reality located above and beyond the sun. Greater than this life under the sun. It includes final judgment. Humanity ultimately only has two eternal options to choose from when we get to that place. We're on the front door of eternity. We have two options. We can either trust in Jesus and find eternal significance in the Lord. Or we can live a Christless eternity in which you're eternally separated from God, often referred to as the second death. This time I invite the band to come up as we land the plane. Man's eternal significance can only be found in Jesus. It can only be found in Jesus.
So what I would like to do with our remaining time is I'd like to call all of us to repentance. If you're an unbeliever, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, urges you to do this without delay. Because no matter how much wealth you have or experiences you partake in, life without God is vanity. You're only chasing after the wind if you expect to find satisfaction or personal fulfillment in the things of this world. Jesus said it this way in Mark 8, 36. He says, For what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? If you're a Jesus follower, as a child of God, don't live your life on the basis of vain wisdom of the world. Live a life of fulfillment according to the eternal wisdom of God and his word. Ask yourself, be truthful with yourself. God already knows. Are you living for the Lord or for the things of this world? What are you trusting in for eternal significance? Is the focus of your life to glorify God or is it to pursue a short-term pleasure? Be honest with yourself. In this time of restlessness, how have you been filling the void? Have you been chasing after idols? Or are you just giving up to despair? Or are you trusting in the goodness and the power of our Lord Jesus? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good. You are greater than anything that we can see on earth. You're greater than any experience that we can have. Lord, you use the greatest injustice of all time, Jesus on the cross, to redeem a people for yourself. Lord, you did that to bring a band of rebels bring us grace and to bring us back to yourself. Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you in this room, Lord, we ask that you save them. Bring them to a place of faith and repentance that they see that their only true hope is in you. That their only source of true joy is in you. Do this for your glory. And for those in this room who are already Jesus followers, Lord, chip away at our lives, Lord. We ask with fear and trembling, but take those things away from us that we've made God things. That we've tried to fill the void of this in-between time. We've, we've used those to, to give us some sort of short-term pleasure instead of just looking to you and resting in you. Lord, please do a work in us and cause us to become more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.